Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, I want to again just welcome you to Horizon West Church. Um, I also want to welcome you to winter. Uh, If you are new to Central Florida, I should probably tell you that spring will be here on Tuesday. And so that's just kind of how that works. That's how we roll here. And it's why you're here, let's be honest. We're the only place in the world where people live here just because they want to. Right? Like, no, job didn't bring me here. I just wanted to live in Central Florida, and now I can, and I did. So, But we do want to welcome you. Um... You know, even as we think about and talk about and sing about God being Jehovah Jireh, he is enough, and we believe that wholeheartedly. But today is not only a day of celebration, but a day of sadness, a day of reflection, because today is the national day of prayer for the persecuted church. And some of you may not know, or you may think persecution was something that Christians dealt with thousands of years ago. But actually, there is more persecution and more martyrdom happening in the Christian church today than at any point in the history of the world. And I am not talking about persecution like getting our feelings hurt because somebody commented on our Facebook post. I'm talking about imprisonment and abduction and torture and murder and people all over the world, not because of their political ideology, but because of their faith in Jesus are facing these terrible things. And so today in a relatively safe part of the world, in a place where we're free to worship and we're free to say, Jehovah Jireh, you are enough. We want to just pause for a moment and remember our brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us to remember those who are suffering as as if we ourselves were suffering. So would you join me? I just want to be quiet and still before the Lord and let you just personally pray. You don't know their names or maybe the places they're in. Would you pray for those that are suffering for the gospel and then I will give voice to that prayer. Let's go before the Lord. God, even as we thank you that we live in a, in, a world, in a nation rather that allows us to gather, allows us to assemble, allows us to worship. God, we recognize there are people in all parts of the world, some because they chose to go there as missionaries, as carriers of the gospel. Others because they were simply born in the wrong place, so to speak. And yet because of their faith in Jesus, your death, your resurrection, and your lordship over the world. Lord, they are being persecuted. We want to remember our brothers and sisters. On this day, would you give them strength from on high? God, would you give them courage? Lord, would you build their faith where it has been broken down? Lord, would they know the truth we just sang? Jehovah Jireh, you are enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in a four-week series. We've actually come to the last of those four weeks, a series that we're calling Forward, and we've named it that because we believe that with God, 
we are meant to go forward, not backward, not to the side, not reminiscing on the past that was, but moving forward. And we've been following the journey of the Hebrew or Israelite community as they're in the wilderness journeying out of captivity in Egypt into the promised land. Now, spoiler alert, we're not going to get them there in this series. They're still going to stay in the desert for a little while. But, but we're going to get through some of those early moments as they wandered through the wilderness outside of Egypt. And the reason that we are telling these stories that are thousands of years old is because of something the Apostle Paul informed, informed us of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he says, Now these things, meaning these Old Testament stories, happened as an example and were written down for our instruction. So Paul's going to say, these aren't just fairy tales, these aren't just clever stories, but these things actually happened, and by looking at what happened, we can learn and grow from it. Now, when I grew up, I was the middle child of seven kids. If you're not good at math, that means I had three younger siblings and three older siblings. And one of the benefits of having older siblings is that you get to learn from their mistakes. And they make a lot of them. I want to apologize to those of you that are an oldest child because, man, that's a hard place to be, right? Like, you, you had to go into the, the unknown world of parents that had never had kids before, right? And you suffered all the consequences for it. And if you had younger siblings, they came behind you and they had it good, didn't they? Like, like everybody who's an oldest child says, man, my parents were harder on me than they were on my kids. Don't even go there, Rosa. You know it's true. So, so the Bible gives us our older brother Israel and says, This is not something divorced from your reality. This is not something unimportant to your experience. Rather, by looking at older brother Israel, we can go, ooh, don't want to do that. Ooh, don't want to do that. Don't want to miss out on what God has for us. And so my hope today and my hope in the days to come is that as God moves this people called Horizon West Church forward, that we'll learn from the stories of older brother Israel and not miss out. I'm going to dive us into the context of the passage that we're going to be in today. I'll let you know where that is in just a moment. In the meantime, check out this map. I've shown this each of the weeks of our series because it's important that you know the Israelite people begin in Egypt where you see Cairo and Memphis and Heliopolis and that area, that is Egypt. They have left the land of their captivity. The most natural thing would be to move north and east. Instead, they move south and east. And the reason being that God doesn't want them to encounter the Philistines and the Amalekites yet because they would get wiped out. So he heads them south. And what they have done is, as I told you last week, they're at about this point on the map. You see where the two arms of the Red Sea, the the Israelites are here. They've left a place called Rephidim and they've arrived at a place called Sinai. And if the term Sinai resonates with you or you go, that sounds familiar, it's probably because of a mountain there that was called Mount Sinai. This is the place where Moses would receive the law from God. And the law would be given to Moses in two stages. First, it would come through what I'm calling social laws. You won't find that in commentaries, but just to help us kind of understand, these social laws are found in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. And they're basically how the people of God are to live before God and among each other. You might know or have a guess on what those social laws began with, something called the Ten Commandments. 
among the Ten Commandments were ones that have become world-renowned, like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. But this began a series of laws that God gave the people to govern them. And then after that, in Exodus 25 through 31, God is giving Moses what I'm going to call sanctuary laws. Social laws, how the people are to live before God and among each other. And sanctuary laws that deal a lot with the dimensions of the tabernacle and the things the priests are to wear. And yes, this is probably the part of the Bible that you just kind of skip through in your reading plan. Okay. Nonetheless, it was important, and Moses is receiving these laws. And in between, in chapter 24 of Exodus, Moses comes down from the mountain and delivers to the people the social laws. He's not yet received the sanctuary laws, but he's gotten the social laws. He comes down and listen to what the people say in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. After hearing the Ten Commandments and the other social laws, it says, Moses took the book of covenant and read it in the hearing of people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. If it was Pinocchio, Right? Like we know how that went. They misunderstood and underestimated their wayward hearts, as we often do as well. Moses then goes back up the mountain of Sinai, and he's there now for 40 days where he's receiving the sanctuary laws. The big picture here, because I want to give us that before we kind of dive into the more granular uh, part of this. The big picture is that God was forming the people of Israel to become a nation through which all of the nations and families of the world would be blessed. This was his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, all the nations and all the families of the world are going to be blessed. So it is important for God not only to get the people out of Egypt, what was then a pagan nation, but now he also is going to give them uh, rules or codes of conduct to live by because he's establishing a people. And everything, now that they've received the laws, everything is set up for the people of God to experience his favor, his success, and victory. And then we get to chapter 32, and the bottom drops out. And maybe you've had an experience in life as a young person, as a teenager, as as an adult, where the bottom dropped out and you knew it was your fault. I want you to know that God is gracious and God is merciful and he can redeem the years the locusts have eaten. But this is a painful experience when it happens and the Israelites are going to find themselves in the middle of it. When I was in my early 20s, which is increasingly a long time ago, I was working in finance. I worked for a company called HSBC and I was part of their subprime lending. Uh, I was a, a account executive, which may, it means it was my job to sell mortgage loans to people. And I got in in 2006. <laughs> You're laughing, right? It was awesome for about 11 months. <laughs> Made a lot of money. And then you know what happened. Something that historians now refer to as the Great Recession. I went from a salesperson to a customer service representative. Calling, oh, you don't want, you know, cold calling. No, 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 getting hung up on. Like, nobody was doing business at that time. Why? Because everything fell, the bottom dropped out, and everybody was holding on to what they had. Some of you in the room, some of you watching online, remember those years of 2007, 2008, 2009. 
And the impact on your finances, the impact on your career, some of you are still dealing with the repercussions of that great recession. I want to call today's message the great rejection. And it is the story of how the bottom dropped out for God's people. I'm going to tell this in three parts out of Exodus chapter 32. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. If you do not have a Bible, we do have it on the screens behind me. Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And so he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. The first part of Exodus 32, we see the people going after a leader of their own choosing. You might want to underline or highlight in your Bible the words, as for this Moses. Doesn't sound very endearing, right? For for whatever reason, that the Hebrew people are still considering Moses an outsider to their community. Now, Maybe this is because Moses grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, right? He probably spoke the dialect of the Egyptians. He was one of them, if you will. And now who does he think he is to try to tell us, true Israelites, true Hebrews, what to do? As for this Moses. Or maybe they were jealous of what was obviously a special relationship that Moses had with Yahweh God. Whatever the reason was, Scripture then says they gathered themselves to Aaron. Now, what's wrong with that? Aaron is also a leader. He he also is assisting Moses in leading the people of God. The the problem is simply this. Aaron wasn't the man that God had appointed to lead. You will always wrestle throughout your life with the temptation to reject God-appointed leaders. And sometimes that God-appointed leader is you. (laughs) What? What? What am I talking about? Look at Exodus chapter 4. I want to take you to the place where God is calling Moses, and I want to show you what Moses immediately responds with. Exodus 4 at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. Instead, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So go, therefore, and I will be I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You ever been there? Here am I, Lord, send her. (laughs) This is what Moses is doing, because Moses himself is not confident in his leadership. And now the people are manifesting that and going, no, 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 Moses, I don't know what's going on with him, but, but Aaron, you lead us. And I think there is an important principle for us to learn in this. Spiritual leadership is not reserved for those who are well-liked, well-spoken, 
or self-confident. Spiritual leadership is assigned by God's own prerogative and for God's own purpose. Now, I'm not saying this because this has happened here and and we have a unique church. I I feel the love and support of our people like like most pastors I know are, are jealous of. Having said that, there are churches where someone starts getting the idea that, man, this other guy over here, you know, he's a better communicator. Let, let's get this guy out and get this guy in. And, 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 and transitions are okay, but, but if God hasn't called that person, don't be blinded by their talents. There's a lot of talented motivational speakers that shouldn't be in the pulpits of churches. And so they want a leader of their own choosing. God's called Moses and they've called Aaron. The one thing that Moses had that neither Aaron nor anyone else in the nation of Israel, he wasn't the most eloquent, he wasn't even the the smartest sometimes, he wasn't a good organizational leader. You know what Moses had? Moses had been called by God. And in that calling, we can rest and know God is with us and God is for us. Parents, you may not always enjoy exercising authority in your home, but you've been called by God to do so. Before your children are going to be your friends, they need to be your children. Children and students in the room and those watching online, you may not always like the authority your parents exercise. But you're called by God to submit to it. And I don't have this in my notes. This does not mean abusive authority. Not abusive authority. But God-given authority exercised by parents, children, students, you're to submit to that. All of us live in submission to authority, don't we? Whether that is a teacher, whether that is an employer, whether that is the board who pays our salary, whether it's the person that pulls us over when we're running late to an appointment and need to get there quickly. Like, we all live under authority. So Paul addressed this with the early church because they had a question of what do we do with authority in our life? Like, you may not know this, but first century uh, authorities were not always the greatest. Oh, by the way, neither are 21st century. So they're saying, what what do we do with godless leaders, people who we believe should not be in authority in our lives? Let me find this. I'm fumbling getting there. Hang on just a second. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, because there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is written to Roman Christians in the first century. They're being imprisoned. They're being killed. They're being mocked and derided and discredited. And Paul says, they're the authority. You've got to submit to them. Now, now, this uses the word governing in the ESV. I think the NIV does the same, governing authorities. But, but just so you don't trip over that, the word in the original language just means someone who is an authority. So we're not just talking government. We're talking people that are in authority in our lives. The people of Israel would choose to reject God-appointed leadership, and they would suffer the consequences of doing so. Here's the second part to the story. First, a leader of their own choosing. Secondly, we see them pursuing a God of their own making. The philosopher Voltaire many years ago said, in the beginning God made man in his image 
And man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Right? Yeah, I don't like a God like that. Let me, give me a God like this. The people say in verse 1, make us gods who will go before us. Now I want to note the absurdity of this statement. This should be abundantly clear. If you have to make it, it isn't God. And we can laugh at the people of, uh, of, of this day making an idol, but you also make money. And some of you think it's God. It's what tells you where to live and where to go and what to do and how to spend your time and what to pursue and what to invest in. It gives you your security. It has become God. Remember, these things were written for us. So there's some profound irony in this. Do you remember in Exodus 24-7 what the people respond to the Ten Commandments? Say, man, this sounds good. Everything that's in there, we're going to do. And now less than 40 days have passed, and here they are building other gods. You know what the first two commandments are? The first two. This wasn't like tacked on at the end. The very first words out of the mouth of God on Mount Sinai to Moses, the people must not have other gods. And number two, they must not make idols. They're like, yes, that sounds good. We'll do that. 40 days later, hey, Aaron, make us a god and make it be an idol. Again, we, we laugh. We go, man, how could you be so half-hearted? But for me, sometimes it's as quick as Sunday to Tuesday, right? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Now, you need to know that the people probably thought they were doing a good thing. Because we often do when it comes to worship. They give up their expensive jewelry and melt it in the fire. And then they make sacrifices to this calf. And notice what Aaron says, and this is so interesting to me, because Aaron, of all people, should know better. He says in verse 5, Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? To the Lord. So they were using this idol to glorify God. God says, no. Nope. Can't do that. That's not how it works. So they're thinking they're doing the right thing and falling flat on their face. Sometimes in my relationship with my wife, Nikki, I think I'm doing the right thing. Doing my acts of service. Doing my physical affection. You don't need to think any more about that, but th those are my love languages. And she'll say, I just, you haven't told me I'm pretty in several days. I'm like, yeah, words of affirmation I'm not good at. I just want quality time. Yeah, quality time I'm not good at, right? I'm loving her my way. And the people of Israel are going to go, God, we're worshiping you our way. Jesus addressed this in John chapter 4, verse 24. He said these words, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. You got a lot of people worshiping in spirit. Woo! Got a lot of people worshiping in truth. God says, I want both. I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your soul. I want your strength. I want all of who you are loving and worshiping me. So in other words, worship of God is less about what we feel or what we say or even what we sing. It's more about what we believe and affirm about who God is. 
A.W. Tozer, a great theologian of the 20th century, said the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and it may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. You know the danger about idols of our mind? Sometimes we don't even realize they're idols. Like it's one thing if I've got to put my blood, sweat, and tears into building something, then I, but I'll believe things about God that are completely erroneous, completely untrue, and then I'll worship that. And God says, nope, spirit and truth. So let me tell the rest of the story. We, we've spent up to this point in verse 1. <laughs> I promise we're not going to go all through the verses that way, but we've been there since, since the beginning. I want to tell you the rest of what happens. So God is with Moses on the mountain. All of this, you know, carousing is going down at the bottom. Moses goes, hey, I hear something. It sounds like our people are in warfare. God says, it's not warfare. It's shouting and dancing and singing. God explains to Moses what has happened. Moses then comes down from the mountain, sees what's going on, throws the tablets. Remember uh, the, the Ten Commandments or whatever it was? Throws the tablets. They shatter These are the instructions and commands that God had given him. He's so ticked off, he just chucks them. They shatter to pieces. And then watch what he does. Moses then burns the golden calf that they have built in a fire, grounds it into powder, scatters it in the water, and then makes the people drink it. This is the first smackdown in human history. Like Moses has gone off on these people. He's just kind of lost himself for a minute. And listen to then what happens. Exodus chapter 32, verses 21 to 29. These are the last verses that we'll look at in the passage today. Exodus 32 and 21 to 29. So Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I, Aaron, said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies... Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And Moses said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord each one of you at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you to this day. I want to grapple with some of the hard stuff in this passage, okay? Because this raises real questions for me. But first, let me tell you the third part of this story. We see the downfall of the people's own doing. And by the way, that's the worst kind of downfall. When it wasn't somebody else's fault. When you have no one left to blame. You're just standing with the shattered pieces of what you've made of your life. Some scholars, as I looked up uh, this week in different commentaries, some scholars believe that the reason Aaron acquiesced to the request of the people or the demand of the people was that they had already demanded it of her, one of the other leaders of the people, and he refused and they killed him. 
When I first read that, I'm like, where in the world does that come from? And here's where it comes from. One, there's got to be some explanation why a man of God like Aaron would just do this thing that's obviously and blatantly against the will of God. But not only that, in the previous chapters, we see Aaron, or, or, or her rather, come kind of shooting onto the scene, and every time Aaron is talked about, her is talked about as well. We come to Exodus 32, no her, and he never again appears in the pages of Scripture. So some scholars, again, believe they've murdered, probably stoned her, and said, okay, Aaron, you do it. And he goes, okay. Right? Now that's just kind of a side note, but, but when, what I want you to know is that when Israel needed a leader who would boldly stand up for the character and commandments of God, it was not Aaron, but Moses who would be the man. Can I submit to you that possibly that's why God chose Moses? He's a man of courage. He's a man of faith. He's a man who could lose his temper, but God set him aside because Moses would hold the line where Aaron would not. And I love Aaron's response. It's just worth noting. You laughed when I read it. He says, I threw the people's gold into the fire and out popped this calf. Doesn't this sound like your five-year-old? It's just so comical. I mean, it's literally funny the way Aaron responds because we see it says that Aaron fashioned it with a tool. Like he's worked on this and he's like, I don't know what happened. I just took their gold and this thing showed up, you know? And Moses obviously isn't, isn't buying it. Let me address some of the challenging questions of these verses. And let me say this before I do. There's a lot of challenging stuff in the Bible. Oftentimes when I read scripture, I leave with more questions than answers. I don't know how to make sense of all of it. And here's some of the things that don't make a lot of sense to me in the passage. First, was Moses right to have the Levites kill their own people for sinning? Like, we know that in the Bible we see things that are prescriptive, like thou shalt not steal, and we see things that are descriptive, like so-and-so stole, right? So is this saying this is what Moses did, or is this really saying God endorsed this action and called for it? I don't know. Secondly, why only put 3,000 to death when presumably the whole nation had sinned? So some people sinned and didn't die. Other people sinned and did die. And, and were they like having interviews before they're killing them? Like, I don't understand that. Let me give you one more. And perhaps the toughest. How do we reconcile this story with the repeated Old Testament refrain that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love? I'm going I'm to leave you with those questions. I'm not going to fully answer them. But I will attempt to speak to it in two different ways. Again, not as a way of resolving tough tension, not as a way of putting a nice bow on it, but here's a couple of thoughts. Number one, remember God's purpose for the nation of Israel. They were to be distinctly different than the other nations, and they were to be a vessel for God's glory throughout the world. And this could not happen as long as there were people who would reject him, worship idols, make sacrifices, by the way, probably child sacrifices, and then even when they're called to repent, say, nope, we're good. By that, they were demonstrating that though they were the people of God physically, so to speak, they were not his people spiritually, which is what he wanted. Secondly, recall that the Old Testament stories are meant to instruct us. So what does this teach us about God? I think there's two things, and I think we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Let me give you the forest. This passage teaches us two important things about the heart of God. God is against sin, and God is for people. 
Talk about tension. Talk about how do we reconcile that. And the truth is the Old Testament leaves that tension unresolved. God loves people. God hates sin. But it does bring us to the most important truth that we can learn from the story in Exodus 32. And that is this. Like all of the stories of the Old Testament, this story of the people of God is an anticlimax. In other words, the end of this story and every Old Testament story is essentially, and then the people failed. That's how it ends. Nehemiah, they build this great wall, yes, and then they tank spiritually. Gideon leads 300 to battle and they're victorious, and then he goes and builds them an idol. They win a victory as they enter the promised land, and then Achan keeps some of the plunder in his tent and he and his family die. The stories of the Old Testament tell us there was no way we could do it on our own. No Old Testament leader, be it Moses, Abraham, David, Esther, any other, would permanently resolve the people's inability to follow God or to walk in spiritual victory. And then someone showed up on the pages of Scripture. And his name is Jesus. And he is the one who would succeed where everyone before him and everyone after him would fail when Jesus on a Roman cross spread out his arms and bled and died and then shouted at the end, it is finished. Those wayward hearts, those judgments, Jesus says, I'm going to take all of it. Remember, God loves people. God hates sin. The cross is the one place where we see the tension resolved. Where God's judgment on sin is final. And where his love for people is most fully expressed. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The truth this morning is that God's heart toward people has not changed over the years. And neither has his heart toward sin. The one thing that has changed is the cross of Jesus Christ. Moses said to the Israelites, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And Jesus said, come to me. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no one on planet earth that needs to be outside of the redemptive mercy of God. All you have to do is come and receive. I want to give an opportunity as we close, and we don't do this every week, but periodically we will. I want to invite any of you that want to respond and receive for the first time the mercy of Jesus to come. Myself, Pastor William and Shiloh, you guys come as well uh, to receive people. And so that's the first call that I want to make. If, if you need to come to Jesus to receive the mercy of God, he's calling to you, and you have the opportunity in just a moment. It may be that you simply just need to be prayed over. You need to be encouraged. You need to hear a word of affirmation. We'd love to do that as well and to pray for you. So William and Shiloh, you guys come up. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, if you need to come to receive God's mercy or be encouraged, you come and do that. Father in heaven, we thank you. God, that what you, the old covenant, the former way, could never resolve. That, God, you sent Jesus. And you made him who had no sin to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Lord, there isn't a person in this room, there's not a person watching online, and mostly the person standing on this stage who deserves your mercy. 
who is without sin, who can stand in the place of judgment, none of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we lay hold of this promise that whosoever believes would not perish, but have eternal life. God, if there's anybody in the room that needs to receive your mercy, let it be so now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.